This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis with the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast. I am really lucky today to have Brent Nelson, who's another attorney who does uh, works with, with wealthy international clientele. And I love picking the brains of, of folks like that. So first off, welcome, Brent. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to see you, Toby, <laughs> let alone talk to you. Hey, we, we could do both. <laughs> yeah, it's even better that way. I see you've got some sort of like bar set up in the background. So oh boy, I don't I don't know why we missed out on on happy hour, but talk about taxes. <laughs> notice, you know, the sad part is none of them are open. <laughs> <laughs> I just collect the bottles. I have a few like not too far from me. Like I have a few. Ah. A, a few bottles of wine. So every now and then, sort of towards the end of the week, I look to my left and I see them and I think, you know, maybe this working thing is going to be okay. We, you know? it's, it's five o'clock somewhere. So yeah. Yeah. No, I can appreciate that 100%. Yeah. I just kind of keep my hard booze over there. Every now and again, somebody pull, points out one of the bottles and says, Hey, is that such and such? I'm like, yeah. Why yeah. is it still full? Mm, I don't really mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. I'll drink the wine. I'm not good on the hard alcohol. But anyway, let's talk about trust since we're talking about things that, well, I guess we can't say the hard alcohol in moderation. Maybe we should call this trust and moderation. Trust and moderation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I use, to talk, use with caution. Yeah. I want to talk about all the bad stuff because I don't know about you, but I've been seeing these promoters all over the place showing you, you don't have to pay a tax if you put your business in a trust. You don't have to pay tax if you have your investments in a trust and all this stuff. And I remember going through this, what was it, 10, 15 years ago where we had the pure trust and then the constitutional trust. Can we put some of that stuff to rest and just dive in? I mean, first off, you've been seeing it. Second off, what do you feel about it? I've been seeing it and I feel that it doesn't work. But the more detailed answer is that, first of all, this is a as you say, this is an idea that is not new and it sort of gets recirculated periodically that somehow if money gets funded into trust, then therefore nobody pays any tax on the money. Well, okay. You got to take two steps back chronologically. First of all, you're talking about money that you earned Mm -hmm. that you're then trying to stick into the trust. And we don't allow you to do that and escape paying taxes. We have this very nice doctrine that was created by the courts called the assignment of income doctrine. Mm-hmm. That basically says, if you earn income, you must pay tax on it. You can't just shift it on to somebody else. So even if, let's just assume hypothetically, this is not true, but just assuming hypothetically that the trust did not have to pay any taxes, the assignment of income doctrine would say, nope, that doesn't work. Okay. Then just because that's not enough, we have these rules that are called the grant or trust rules that would prevent someone from creating a trust for themselves. And in many cases for their family, because they like to keep control over these trusts and then not paying tax on it. So what happens is you put the money in the trust, say you're a beneficiary of the trust, and you think, oh, great, now I don't have to pay tax on the money. Even if you got over this assignment of income issue, well, the answer is not so fast because the grantor trust rule pretends that you still own what is inside the trust and therefore you still own the income and therefore you pay tax on it. So it's a little, you know, I kind of, and I know like conceptually that idea is weird because it's not reality, Maybe you really did put the money in the trust. You really don't have the money, but we just pretend for tax purposes like the trust is not there. We we like it because you could ignore the trust and you yeah. can pay the tax on it just like you own it. So an asset protection trust, it's actually 
kind of a handy dandy to have a grantor trust. Mm-hmm. But that's not what these scam artists are doing. These guys are going right to the, hey, this is a complex trust and I can avoid all the tax by reallocating it to corpus and all this other stuff. Yeah. In my opinion, they're just butchering the the code. But I'm, I'm curious as to your opinion, since you're an expert in this area and you probably have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. I think the chances are that they are not escaping the grantor trust rules, even when they say that they are. So I think that's the first thing. People don't realize how sticky those grantor trust rules are. They exist to prevent you from not paying tax on income that's in the trust. So it's very difficult to avoid if you have any interest in the trust or you you really maintain any sort of controls over the trust. But let's just assume that you could get over that. So you again, you're earning income and you're shifting it into the trust. You've got this assignment of income doctrine that says, nope, that doesn't work. You have to pay tax on the income. Even if, let's say what you really did was you gifted in say like business interests into the trust. And it was truly a complex trust, meaning it's a non-grantor trust. Mm -hmm. Well, we have rules for that too. And those rules say that someone between the trust and the trust beneficiaries must pay tax on the income Mm -hmm. for federal purposes. Okay. So even if you park this thing in a state that doesn't have state income taxes, that only solves the state income tax issue, which I think is the, the slight like half truth that you get told in some of these promotions, right? We can get back to that in a second, but yeah, they do the nings and the dings and all. Yeah, they're they're saying, hey, we can avoid California tax or something like that, right? Which, yeah, maybe you can, but that's state tax, not federal tax. And then it also turns out that these complex trusts, if they retain the income, so they're going to pay income on the earnings, they pay tax at the highest rates at the lowest possible levels. Yep. And so the tax hit is not, not only you're not saving tax, you're paying higher taxes. And, and j- just put it in perspective. Is it like, Hey, I made 15 grand. I'm going to be in the highest tax bracket. Yes, <laughs> basically. That's really it. I, just wanted, I just like, let's just be straight up. It is ridiculous. I forget what it is exactly. It's like around. I think it's 14,000 something. I can't remember the exact weird inflation adjusted number right now, but and you're at 37%. Yes. Yes. So that's not a great result. Some promoter says, this is a great idea. Let's put your business. I've had two clients that were seven figure clients get pitched this with their S corps for their business so that they would never have to pay tax on that money again. And I'm like, not only would you pay tax, you're going to get killed in taxes. Yes. That one's a really curious one, right? Because All right. Again, let's just assume they put the shares of the S-Corp stock into the trust. There are only certain types of trusts that can own S-Corp stock. So either you're no longer an S-Corp and now you're paying corporate level tax, you're paying two levels of tax, C-Corp level tax plus tax on the dividends. So that could be one option. The other option is that you are a trust that can hold S-Corp stock, but it turns out that those are grantor trusts. And so you're paying tax no matter what, like you, you get it coming and going and there's just no relief. And again, this assignment of income doctrine kicks in. And anytime also, I guess we should probably know that you're trying to avoid paying tax that you owe and you're layering in a trust as a mechanism to make it look like you don't owe the tax. Even setting aside all these fun things that we talked about, courts can freely ignore that the trust exists if it's a fraud. Yep. So there's also that. There's the tools in the tool kit for the courts and say the IRS who's arguing to the courts is vast. Now, there are people that 
correctly can point out that there is a provision in the in the code about reallocating certain things like dividends, extraordinary dividends, things like that into the corpus. Is there a scenario when the trust can actually say, hey, yeah, this was shares, for example, and instead of a dividend, but it's still taxed normally. And they're saying, hey, just allocate it back into the into the body of the trust. Is there a situation like that where you could escape immediate taxation and it just gets added to the to the corpus of the trust? Uh, no, <laughs> but the and the answer is is you're really talking about two different, completely different concepts. They're somewhat related in the trust and estate income tax rules, but when you're talking about corpus, you're really talking about what's called a trust accounting income mm-hmm. issue and how you account for money that comes into the trust for for state law trust purposes. And mm-hmm. so the the general rule is that a dividend is quote unquote income. It may be that income is payable out to beneficiaries or not. It might not be, but you can under some under most state laws and under under trust agreements themselves, you can allocate those things to the corpus, which means it may not be payable out of the trust immediately. Well, that does not change the tax status of the trust at all. That's all just sort of like internal accounting for non-tax purposes. So it doesn't save you on taxes. Yep. So yeah, sometimes people get confused because they hear the the, the uh, DNI or distributable net income, and they'll hear like, "Hey, the trust is sending it to the beneficiary." That doesn't mean that nobody's paying tax on it. It just right. means the trust doesn't have to get killed on at the highest level, and it's taxed to the recipient. True. That's not True. what these guys are doing, though. No. And I, I had another one, and I'll just throw this one. I know I'm throwing weird scenarios at you, but there was a really nice people. They were in California. And they were doing, they do very, very well. They do lots of investments and they were pitched a three trust mechanism. One of them being a charitable trust, a business trust, and then just a grantor trust that held the business trust with the beneficiary being this foundation. And they, they were loaning the money back out, doing all this craziness. I just said, it's a sham and look at it and go, first off, that's not how the rules are, but First blush, have you seen anything like that out there that you've had to deal with? Uh, and then what's your first blush on something like that? Yeah, I can't say that I've seen anything quite like that, although I would be very curious about how they were using the charitable trust. My the, the transactions that I've seen, the way that it is almost always structured, and this is really where it starts to fall apart, is that let's say you have these three mechanisms and all of these loans basically everything happens on day one and you have to do it on, you know, the promoter wants you to sign everything on day one. So you sign everything on day one. Well, right off the bat, you know, somebody like you or I, and certainly a smart lawyer at the IRS is going to look at that and say, we can ignore the fact that you have all these different parts for tax purposes. We'll just, we'll just treat it the way that it really should be so-called substance over form. We'll just treat it the way that it should be for tax purposes. And you know what? You want to set up all these buckets and do all this complicated stuff, mazel tov, but that doesn't change the, the tax treatment. So you're stuck with the tax treatment and you've paid a lot of money for this complicated structure. So you're kind of stuck with both, unfortunately. Yeah. I actually emailed the promoter, wrote him a letter, and I was just saying, could you please just like, my opinion is that this is a complete farce. And also it was a private, it was a charitable foundation, but it was taxed as a private foundation. And I said, mm-hmm loan money to it yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. but they were it was all in writing that's what these guys do i'm like just send it to the irs let them know maybe there'll be a recovery for you but yeah, yeah. it's interesting I, I think you probably see the same thing that first of all most of the promoters are not what i would 
consider serious tax professionals. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that they they oftentimes like to hang their hat on the fact that everything is above board. They're like, well, it's in the we have all these documents, we've got it all papered over, and so therefore this is this is valid. And people need to understand, I think, the hard truth, which is, you know, if you can you can do all the dumb things you want, but that doesn't mean you get the tax result you want. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge gulf between doing something that you want to do and then using it for a tax advantage and expecting the IRS to give you the tax advantage. They won't tell you you have to unwind the dumb transaction. They'll just say you can't take the tax advantage. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, hey, we don't care what you're calling it. We're going to treat it this way. It never really yeah. left the pocket. It was interesting because I had another one out here. I mean, I just I get hit with these all the time. So I'm just thinking of the ones that I've had in the last year. And there was another gentleman. I get on the phone with them. It's always somebody that they say is a lawyer, but it's not a lawyer. (laughs) And the lawyer had a Supreme Court decision that they rely on when they said to do it. And I'm like, what's the Supreme Court decision? And then I look at it and I'm like, it has nothing to do with what you just said. Yeah. You know, or it's something that is like from 1800s or something goofy where you're like, uh, you know, or a long time ago, a hundred years ago, where you're looking at it going, this is not relevant or this is not what you cited it for this has nothing to do with anything right pretty words but well and that's a red flag for people too i guess you know for anybody listening if you're getting promotions and again what they're hanging their hat on is that it's black and white you know the code lets you do this it's black and white well just understand that first of all the last time there was a major change in the code was 1986 yeah (laughs) and the irs might and congress might have changed their minds about certain transactions, they might not have anticipated this transaction happening. So the the chances, okay, let's just assume probabilities here. The chances of it being black and white in the code are not good. And there's a lot of gray area in the code. So whenever somebody comes at me with a, it's black and white, I'm, of course, I'm a crotchety lawyer too. I'm just sort of like, okay, come on, really? If it's too good to be true, you're just looking at it going, come on. Yeah. Somebody's going to pay tax on this. When I see this, it's always to somebody affluent, somebody who has lots of tax pain. And there are lots of ways to mitigate your tax. Mm-hmm. Paying no tax is usually not one of them. Maybe if you're a real estate professional, maybe if you have, uh, you're operating in an exempt environment and you're not, you don't have, you know, you're taking a reasonable salary or something, maybe. But for the most part, it's no, you're not, you're not going to avoid it all. Right. But there are scenarios where trust are your friends. Now, maybe we could touch on some of the areas and because you're working with wealthy folks, your your clientele sounds like a lot of international. When do you use a trust and for what purpose? Well, trusts are, you mentioned one, which was asset protection. Trusts can be excellent vehicles for asset protection. In some states, uh, you can get asset protection for yourself. So you can create a so-called self-settled asset protection trust, whether those apply in every single jurisdiction maybe a little bit of a cloud on that. But even if you don't want to do it for yourself and you want to do it for your kids, so you've you've, you've put two nickels together and you've earned some money in your day and you want to spare some of that money from ever going to future ex-in-laws and things like that, you can put them in trust Mm -hmm. and get great asset protection for your family. So you can sort of protect that family wealth in the wrapper of the trust. And all you have to do is create the trust and you get the benefit. If you don't create the trust, you don't get the benefit. There are tremendous estate tax and generation skipping transfer tax benefits in certain types of trusts. Okay, we mentioned grantor trusts. 
Mm-hmm. particularly with uh, grantor trusts that are irrevocable trusts, which basically means you're going to get the, the asset protection. Mm-hmm. But you, the grantor who created the trust safe for your kids, you're going to pay tax on behalf of the trust, but everything in the trust is going to be free from estate tax. So just imagine what that looks like. Because to me, if you're trying to sort of boil it down to like, what do normal humans understand? It looks like a Roth IRA. It's like you paid the tax on the Roth IRA and then it gets to grow tax-free. Well, somewhat like that, these grantor, irrevocable grantor trusts, you can set it up for your kids. You're paying the tax on behalf of the trust. And then the money in the trust gets to grow tax-free, which is where you want all the growth because nobody pays a state tax on that money. You and- you you pay, we say it's tax-free. It's growing tax-free for the estate tax, but you're you're the grantor. It's grantor yes. trust. You're still paying tax if there's capital gains or whatnot. It's yes. still down to you, but you're not burdening your kids. So exactly, uh, we have this massive estate tax. Uh, yeah, I think you've been doing this as long as I have. Where you know, I, I remember six hundred thousand dollar estate tax exemption when I started. I still remember those really small exemptions, and now we're what twelve million plus yeah. exemption. Yeah. So if somebody's over that, you're looking at this going. Wow. Or is there is there a threshold that you use? I mean, it could be lower because we could be back at a million for all we know. I forget where it's going to go when the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act sunsets, but it, it, it's definitely not going to be 12 million. It's going to fall way down there, isn't it? It won't. It'll be half of that. It, so the, the base number right now is 10, 10 million, and then it gets adjusted for inflation. The base number in 2026, so on January 1, 2026, will be 5 million adjusted for inflation. So just round numbers, let's say it's 12 today, it'll be six then. Mm -hmm. So really, we're in a really weird environment where you could have somebody who's over the 12, that's easy, they need to do, they need to do something like they have to plan for it, because this tax is horrendous, like you're you're pointing out, it's a 40 cent on the dollar tax, So you got a $13 million estate, you die, a million of it's over the 12, you somebody writes a $400,000 check to the IRS, that's painful. Mm -hmm. There is this weird middle ground right now between the 12 and say the six, where they don't have a problem today, but if they do the dumb thing and survive until 2026, then they do have a problem. Mm -hmm. And so for those people, they kind of have to pretend that they have an issue and start doing planning. The way that I like to plan for people in that space is to try to do things that will, in essence, cap the value of their estates. So we're not going to get over 12 million. And there are a lot of techniques that we can use to take some of the assets that they own that might have variable value Mm -hmm. and and actually transfer those or even sell those into trusts and convert them into something that has a very specific value. Okay. So let me give you an example so people understand what I'm talking about. So let's say I set up one of these beautiful irrevocable grantor trusts. I'm the grantor, so I paid all the tax for the trust and you're the beneficiary because you're my bestest friend in the world. And so I have a bunch of Apple stock. I don't know what the value of Apple stock is going to be tomorrow, let alone in 2026. So I would prefer to take a promissory note that has a value equal to the Apple stock today and just hold that because I know that's not going to change in value. So what I do is I sell my Apple stock to my new irrevocable grantor trust. The trust gives me a promissory note for the fair market value today. And now... If the Apple stock appreciates in value above the face value of the note, plus whatever the interest rate is, all of that appreciation is in the trust for your benefit. It's out of my hands. And no matter when I die, I'm not paying a state tax on it. You're not going to pay a state tax on it. 
And so these sorts of little valuation sort of capping transactions become really important, especially for people in between these threshold numbers. If you get above the thresholds, then it becomes really important to to not only do those things, but really like give away as much as you possibly can. Now, you just mentioned a, a installment sale, basically. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Are they paying it or is it deferred? Is it something where you can say, hey, don't mess around with the interest because we, we don't really want to sell the Apple stock, right? Well, we're selling it, but because I own the stock and the IRS pretends that I own everything in the grantor trust, it's not a true sale. taxable sale. So there's no capital gains. So I'm not going to pay any capital gains. It's a true sale. Like there is substance to it. It needs to be a real sale. There needs to be a real note with real interest that's really paid to me. Ultimately, the goal is to actually pay off the note at -hmm. some point, but we can pay it off over time. We don't have to pay it off in the first year. Do you put like a marker on it? Like, hey, if you ever sell the stock, you have to pay back the note. And in the meantime, the interest just accumulates. No. Is it something where you have to pay the tax or what's the mechanism or, or do you have to start making payments that first year? We we usually require at least interest payments in the first year. And very frequently the, the note is set up as an interest only note that has a balloon payment at the end, say it's 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. We might go, we might go something slightly less than 10 years on the term of the note because it gives us a little bit better interest rate. But the idea is that once we put the stock into the trust, the trust has free use of the stock. If the trust sells the stock, and so they've actually generated a capital gain because they sold the stock, we also usually have a provision in the trust that should I want it, mm. I, I can ask and get permission if, if an independent person agrees to it, to be reimbursed for the cost of the capital gains tax. So I'm not going to be burdened with the capital gains tax that I didn't want to pay. Because it's still a grantor trust, so right. I'm still responsible for any of the income. If there's dividends paid out of Apple, for example, they pay a small dividend, but then would that also be taxable to me as the, let's say it's the parent for a child instead of just mm-hmm. you really nice to me and giving me lots of stock, although I wouldn't stop you. You wouldn't stop me. Okay, good to know. But, uh, but you're still paying the tax on that, right? You're not, you're That's not. right. And if if I need to pay interest, is it something where I could continue to make additional contributions to the trust in case there needs to be cash that's paid out as interest? Or how does that work? Do I have to sell stock to, to pay that interest? Hopefully not. The idea is actually what you would do is first, when you when I create the trust, I would seed the trust with other investments. Right. Maybe it's Maybe it's cash, but maybe it's other investments. I like to seed it with something that has a return on it. Mm-hmm. So that collectively, the return that we can get on on those assets, plus the thing that I'm going to sell into the trust, is far more than the interest that's going to be paid on the note. I don't want to overly burden the trust. I don't want the trust to be uneconomical. And of course, what I'm trying to do is put more money into the trust. I don't want the money coming back to me. I want as much in the trust as possible. So if a really good example would be if I have, say, some real estate that's rented out and it has a pretty good stream of income on it, I might gift that into the trust first because the income off the real estate is going to support the promissory note in the future. Either gift it or sell it. Or I, I, no, I, I understand what you just said. So you're gifting the entire real estate in there so that the income stream covers the interest on the note? Yeah. Or it could be a mix. So maybe I gift a, a part of it and then I sell the balance in. But just so that the the assets collectively between what I sell into the trust and what I gifted into the trust are able to generate plenty of income 
to support the note payments. Cause I, again, I don't want it. I don't want the trust to be uneconomical mm-hmm. uh, and I want the note to actually be paid off at some point. Real estate's just great because it often has a relatively consistent um, stream of income. It can be used to, to do future financing. So if the financial terms are, are appropriate, you might be able to, to suck some equity out of the real estate, pay off the note. And now you're just paying back the bank, but you're going to pay off the bank over probably a longer period of time than my promissory note. Those sorts of transactions then are possible in the future with something like real estate. That's really smart. And then it sounds like if somebody's over the $5 million mark, they might need to consider this. And would it be business interests, stock, real estate, just maybe they're getting a portion of it that might be highly appreciating or you know, it keeps going up in value that they just kind of want to freeze it so that they don't have an estate tax issue? Is, is that primarily what we're doing here? That's what we're doing. And it would be all of the above. Yep. It, yeah. Obviously, it depends on what somebody owns. It, the first question I almost always ask a client is something along the lines of, how much can you afford to give away? Like, What do you need to live on? Because we also are not asking clients to do something that then impoverishes them in a way that substantially affects their quality of life. I'm not saying super lavish lifestyles, but I I want them to be able to like live comfortably the way that they enjoy living. And so we're trying to come up with strategies that can generate streams of income coming back to them from these trusts that will in reality support the lifestyle that they want. I want them to also maintain enough funds outside of the trust. So that if everything goes south in the trust transaction, they have enough money to take care of themselves, of course. But I don't want to do something that is that is unreasonable because it just doesn't really work for their lifestyle. So we're always trying to match up payment terms and assets with the reality of the client's lifestyle. Now, uh, shifting gears slightly is, is you mentioned international clients. Uh, So you have wealthy international clients. Are are, are we talking just U.S. citizens or do you have folks that are non-citizens too? Both. Yeah. So if you're a U.S. citizen, you get the benefit of the U.S. estate tax these huge amounts, the 12 million right now, and in 2026, going back down to the 5 million index for inflation, which will be around 6 million. What what about the international folks? Because they don't get the benefit of that, do they? They do not. So if you are not a citizen and you're not a resident, and resident means you don't live here with the intent to stay here, you're not a so-called domiciliary of the US, then your estate tax exemption is $60,000, And that number has existed since the 30s and they're not changing it. So, and it's not indexed for inflation. So no one is coming to the rescue. These people don't vote. Okay. So nobody's helping them. So I'm somebody, let's say that I'm in Spain and I own a million dollars of US real estate. Am I going to be paying 40% on that million dollars minus the 60,000 exemption? Unfortunately, yes. What, What if I'm married to a US citizen? Do I do I get any reprieve or am I still going to get hit? So in that case, if you leave the property to your U.S. citizen spouse, you get the benefit of what's called the marital deduction against estate tax. And that's a dollar for dollar deduction for all the value that goes to your U.S. citizen spouse. So you, you would pay no estate tax at your death in that case. Yeah. And in essence, the in essence, the policy is great. Now the property is in the hands of an American. We can tax Americans. So we'll expect that will tax the spouse later on. Of course, now the exemptions are so high for Americans that it's not as useful, but that is still the policy. 
Do you see this scenario play itself out? Is this something that you have folks come in and they're like, I have five or $6 million real estate in the US. I'm not a US citizen. I don't intend to reside here. You know, I'm not married to a US citizen. I just own a bunch of real estate here. And is that something you see? I do. And when they have done the thing and bought all the property before talking to me, that's a real challenge because it's hard to, to back out of that transaction without paying tax on some level. Usually, usually what it requires is swallowing a somewhat bitter pill and paying capital gains tax in order to avoid later paying estate tax. And the reason for that is that the the typical way to plan around the transaction, well, there's really two ways. The first way is for a non-citizen, non-resident of the US, it's important that that is what they are. Okay, this doesn't apply to US citizens. If you set up a foreign company that's viewed as a corporation here. And that, and you own stock in the foreign company, and it owns the U.S. real estate. When you die, we pretend you only own the stock in the foreign company and not the U.S. real estate, so no estate tax. Yep. But in order to back into that structure, when you already own the U.S. real estate, you have to pay capital gains tax. You're going to have to sell it to the corporation, right? In essence, yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a. It doesn't mean there's like an exchange of cash. It's just we pretend that it's a sale when you contribute it to the foreign corporation. And then how would this change if you do have a U.S. citizen spouse? Yeah, it's a little easier when you have a U.S. citizen spouse because of the marital deduction, but you end up in a, a, there's a little bit of a a logical conundrum because you're guessing on who's going to die first. Yep. If it's the foreigner, you're fine. If it's the U.S. person, then you got a problem. The other way that we usually handle this problem, if we, if we don't want to pay capital gains tax is we simply have the foreign spouse buy life insurance if they're insurable because proceeds on life insurance on the life of a non-citizen, non-resident of the US, very important that that's what you are because it doesn't apply to US people, but the proceeds on life insurance on that type of a person are not subject to estate tax. So we buy the life insurance to cover the estate tax in the off chance that foreign person dies second, not first. Very, very interesting. What if they, does it change if they are a resident, they have a green card, Maybe they have a 10-year green card or something along those lines. Does it does it change everything uh, under those circumstances? It totally flips everything on its head. <laughs> and so, of course, of course. It's like, yeah, you got a green card. Great. You can't vote, but we're going to tax you like a U.S. citizen. But that means you get the benefit of this $12 million exemption as well. So You get it. Okay. So do. All right. So if you have that green card, that's your reprieve. If you become a non-resident, so your green card's for three years and it expires, now you're back in, oh, heck. You could be, you could be. And well, in the meantime, the fun thing is we pretend you're a citizen, so we tax you on all your worldwide income. And so we kind of get it from some angle. And then there are some very specific rules about long-term green card holders. So if you hold a, a green card for more than eight of the last 15 years, and then you give it up under some circumstances, we charge an exit tax. We pretend you sold all of your assets and then you have to pay capital gains tax in the US on your way out. That's the, uh, I think that's some Canadian friends that I know here is that they were dealing with that and they were about, I'm going to go back. And then they were like, I'm not going to go back. Yeah, yeah. Because the tax is so heinous. Yeah. It goes both ways. Canada has its own exit tax. They actually call it the exit tax. We call ours the expatriation tax, but the... <laughs> They they functionally are the same. Where when you when you're a Canadian resident and you come down here and you become a U.S. resident, you have an exit tax to pay in Canada, and it can be kind of painful. So 
Canadians who accidentally trip up on the Canadian exit tax are not happy. Yeah, because the CRA is not a pleasant organization. No. The the other fun one is when they put things in trust, don't they treat it for Canadians? They treat it as though they uh, sold the asset too, right? They do. Yeah. If you're a Canadian resident and you create a U.S. trust because that's what your very smart and well-meaning U.S. advisor told you to do, it's a deemed mm-hmm. sale of the asset to the trust in Canada. So you pay tax in Canada. The U.S. doesn't care, but Canada really cares. Canada's the blame Canada. Exactly. (laughs) So I guess the moral of the story, and I I could talk to you all day about this stuff because I find it fascinating, is it's complicated. It is very complicated. Yes. Unfortunately, it is. Yep. And if you have a green card, if if you own substantial assets and you're non-U.S. resident, non-U.S. citizen, you need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. If you're a U.S., you reside here and you have assets over $5 million, you need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing on this precise issue, because it sounds like it could be a nasty ramification. I want to ask you one last question. This is a softball because I know you and I think the same way, but there's also these revocable trusts that are floating around Mm -hmm. out there, most notably the living trust that Mm -hmm. we oftentimes hear about. And I just want to get your take on people that do wills versus living trusts versus do nothing at all. I'm not in favor of do nothing at all. So so to be perfectly clear, my number one preference is to do a living trust or revocable trust at a minimum. Mm -hmm. And that's for almost every single one of my clients, regardless of how much money they have in the bank or in the company. Okay. So I, I wish more lawyers said that. Uh, the the thing that really keeps me up at night is the nightmarish guardianship and conservatorship files that I have that exist because somebody didn't do a very small amount of planning and do what could have been a extremely simple, in inverted commas, simple revocable trust that would have resolved this it, an issue of what happens when they become incapacitated, who's going to manage things and, or what happens if you die and you leave money to a minor who will manage things for the minor. If it runs through a revocable trust, it just solves all those problems. And there's so much headache that can be resolved just by doing this very simple thing that I see almost no circumstances where it doesn't make sense. The biggest caveat to it, honestly, is usually with foreigners where their home jurisdiction has a rule like Canada that says doing a trust is a deemed sale. Setting that aside, it's almost always the right answer. And does Canada always tax? So if you do a living trust in the United States and you're a U.S. citizen, but and all your assets are here in the U.S., would Canada still hit it? If you're a U.S. citizen and not a a resident of Canada, then, then you're okay. But if you're a resident of Canada and you're doing a trust here, in most instances, they'll treat it as a sale of the assets to the trust. There are some very small carve-outs for like elderly people who are doing basically revocable trusts. They call them bear trusts in Canada. Yeah. And those trusts escape these rules. But the general rule is, yeah, you have to- It's over a certain trust. age, right? I believe it's over a certain age. It's 65 and older, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I remember seeing that it's in the recesses of this brain. But I want to hit on the living trust just one yeah. more time because a lot of times people will go to somebody and they'll say, just do a will. And I'm always like, that's comparing a like a happy meal to buying just the burger. Oh, you can just buy the burger. The happy meal comes with other stuff. Yeah. And 
the other stuff is sometimes what's really important. And so you just talked about doing guardianship files and conservatorships. That's almost, then that's always included in a living trust. I've never seen a living trust that, that, that did not have power of attorneys for financial and in and, and health. And I've never seen those attached to just a will. Sometimes somebody will do both, but usually if you're going through the trouble, you're either doing the estate plan or you're not. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that just bugs the heck out of me because I see that over and over again. Because again, it's like, should I have a meal or should I have a soda pop? And they said, well, the soda pop's perfectly filling, but they're two very different things. So when somebody says, should I do a will or a living trust? I always look at it going, they're they're different animals. And uh, like you mentioned some of your files, like how long, like how arduous is the process of getting to become somebody's conservator or taking over their finances when there isn't a written document? Is it, is it pretty heinous? Well, in my fine state, which is similar to most states, you, somebody who cares enough about you has to file a petition with the court. The court appoints somebody to sort of be an investigator and talk to all of the interested parties and submit a report to the court. The court appoints a lawyer to you who is now incapacitated. So at least two lawyers are almost always involved. The court appoints a medical professional to do a medical examination. All of this gets submitted to the court. You have a public hearing on your inability to manage your finances, which may not be very pleasant. Mm -hmm. Then somebody gets appointed. Then every year they have to account to the court down to the penny, everything that has come in and out of their hands on your behalf. And they do that for your lifetime or until you're cured, which is not usually the case. So, so if you have somebody with dementia, if you have somebody that was in a car accident and for whatever reason can't make decisions on their own behalf, maybe they're brain dead, right? You're, you're if you're going to you're going to have to go through this process even under those circumstances. Yeah, dementia definitely, uh car accidents definitely. Dementia one that's easier to plan for and plan around. If somebody gets in an accident um and say they end up with a personal injury settlement, that's that can be hard to plan plan for and plan around, and you may be forced into one of these conservatorships, but they are just very burdensome and very time-consuming. And when people hear time-consuming, they should think expensive. Yes. That time is being charged by the hour. But a will is easy and probate yeah. <laughs> is not bad in my state. I mean, I wish I had a nickel. Probate's not bad in my state. Oh, you don't need that. And you're just like losing your mind. All right. So I think we think alike on that one. Yeah, we definitely do. Well, the other thing is they say, well, I have a power of attorney that takes care of it. And which is totally fine. It's just that the banks don't always agree. And so yeah. if the bank doesn't agree, your power of attorney is worthless. Yep. And that's happens so frequently. And sometimes people don't believe me, but that is the case. You can, it's happened plenty of times, just say over the last 10 years that I could say with full confidence Banks hate powers of attorney. Yep. Do the trust. Do the trust. I, I, and I've dealt with the same thing you've dealt with. And it's like, uh, yeah, but they're covering their backside. They've, they've obviously been disastered in some circumstances. And, you know, ultimately, I don't think anybody's acting with ill intent. They're just trying to do what's in their best interest. And it's not easy. So make sure you got your bases yeah. covered and make it easy. Anything else you want to hit on? I've really enjoyed our conversation. So I'm just curious. I want to just anything else you want to add? I guess the, the only thing we didn't mention, this is this is along the lines of the conversation we had at the beginning about all these fun promoted trusts. If it's a trust that's in a foreign jurisdiction, just know that your antenna should go 50,000 stories high um, <laughs> because it probably doesn't work. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. We didn't even get into, I, I don't know about you, but I've had multiple clients go to me and say, I'm going to do this trust. It's an, this trustee has been in business since the 1800s or something weird. And then they come back a couple of years later going, my trustee won't respond. How do we get my money back? Yeah. I've had that on more than three occasions. Like I can think of just a few of them right off the top of my head. Have you dealt with that too? And like, I mean, you said your tenant goes up. Is that one of the reasons or are there other reasons too? Well, one reason is just because the way that they're promoted is not the way they actually work. You know, it's like this, it's supposedly some sort of tax move. It's it's not just surprise. That's you don't have to wait through the details. The surprise ending is it's not, it's not a tax move. You don't save taxes. You usually complicate your taxes, is what happens. And then yeah, nightmare scenarios do happen. I mean, one of the most egregious cases that I had was a client who who had a trust that was set up actually by her husband. And there were two individuals who were the trustees and they basically just completely mismanaged the funds and stole money. Mm-hmm. And it took years to run them down. It took years to get rid of them. And we, we literally still have in the investment accounts, one or two Irish mutual funds that were frozen during the great recession, not great investments to begin with, but they were frozen during the great recession. We cannot recover the money. That yeah. was yeah, whatever, 2009, 10. And I, we still haven't resolved it. And I again, there's there's enough nightmare stories of the trustee quit responding. <laughs> Where is this trust? Isle of Man or Cook or one of the, you know, some island somewhere. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to go there. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be expensive litigation if they're still there. Chances are they just disappeared with your money. I'm not a big fan going offshore unless you have a really good reason, but... That's interesting. Again, you and I think more alike than I realized on, on a lot of these, just from what I see, because boy, we we see a ton where somebody comes in and it's some promoter, go to this island, go to that island, go over here, go over there. And I'm like, do you have business over there? Do you have people over there? Do you have an infrastructure over there? Because right. It would be really, really bad if, if you have to enforce over there. It's going to be tough. You have no infrastructure. Are there any yeah. situations where you do go offshore? It tends to be non-Americans. So foreign clients who are, say, investing in the U.S., we might set up a trust for them that's a non-U.S. trust, although we set up plenty of U.S. trusts for those people. But sometimes it's better to set up the trust in a foreign jurisdiction because their home jurisdiction and that jurisdiction are more friendly to each other than that jurisdiction in the U.S. And so we'll we'll use the um, the foreign country to set up the trust. That's really it. I mean, the Frankly, the U.S. tax laws and the U.S. trust laws are so good and so robust, and it's such a good environment for investments that very frequently the trusts are here, even for the foreign clients. Yep. My experience too. U.S., it's hard to beat. Yes. We tax worldwide income. So yeah, like you're not going to move it outside the U.S. and somehow still have access to it and get it. No. But, But why would you? You know, buy the asset, let it appreciate. You can borrow against the asset. It's going to step up when you die. I mean, there's just so many other benefits that are floating around here in the U.S. tax code. It's like, why why go mess around overseas? Unless you're Amazon. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know that's, I hit that from people sometimes. Like, what about, you know, Amazon and Apple and all these companies? And I say, you're not a company. So just, you're playing by a completely different set of rules. What are you thinking? And they've been hit with like billion dollar fines too. Apple yeah. getting crushed. Yeah. It's the intellectual property, and they're doing. I think I forget what it was like Isle of Man or Lichtenstein. I mean, there's there's places that <clears throat> oh, 
but uh, yeah, yeah, just don't, just don't, just you're an individual. Don't, it's not worth it. Yeah. You don't need your team of lawyers to go overseas and try to argue why you shouldn't pay the tax that they're trying to assess on you that you set it up to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier just to keep it simple. Uh, Indeed. Brent, how does somebody get a hold of you if they, if they want to reach out? Uh, if they Google Brent Nelson lawyer, they'll probably find me, but I work at a, I'm a partner at a firm, I should say, uh, called Ramon, R-I-M-O-N. I live in Tucson, but the, the firm is an international firm of about 180 lawyers or so. And then uh, I'm on social media at Wealth and Law, all spelled out. And I have a podcast, the Wealth and Law podcast. Excellent. And that's on on all the normal podcast aggregators, Apple, Spotify, et cetera. So anybody looking for me, they can find me. The Googles know I exist. I'll put you in the show notes too and make sure that we put a link so that they're easy to find you. The world is, you. needs good people like yourself. I, again, we, we, we have some crossover, but I have no problem saying reach out. Uh, if you're somebody who's over that $5 million mark and, and you want somebody who knows what they're doing, this is what, this is what guys like Brent do all day. And you, you want somebody that knows their stuff for a hundred percent. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. I was going to call this trust scams and things to avoid. And we, we all see them. And every time somebody comes running in and says, I don't have to pay tax. This guy said that. I'm always like, oh, no, not again. Yeah, not again. Exactly. Well, I, I let me give the compliment the other way, too. So if anything I said makes somebody think they need Toby services, great. So <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. The world is abundant. That doesn't bother uh, me at all. Yeah, never, never a worry here. But uh, I just appreciate you sharing. Likewise. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.